week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. In 2009, Andy Schleck became the first rider since Eddie Merckx to win Liège-Bastogne-Liège and finish on the Tour de France podium in the same year. Schleck had come to the fore of world cycling with his performance in the 2007 Giro d'Italia, aged just 21, where he finished second behind the now-disgraced Danilo De Luca. The young Luxembourger rode his first Tour de France the following year in the service of his CSC teammates, his brother Frank and the Spaniard Carlos Sastre. Both wore the yellow jersey and Sastre won on Alpe d'Huez and went on to win the race overall, the only stage race victory of his career. Andy Schleck had been instrumental in Sastre's victory, especially on Alpe d'Huez where he controlled the pace of the chasing group containing Evans and chased down any rogue attacks, all seemingly at ease. By the spring of 2009, Schleck was still only 23 and yet to score a major victory, but all that was to change when the 95th edition of Liège-Bastogne-Liège got underway, where the favourites were the likes of former winners David Revelan, Alejandro Valverde as well as Damiano Cunego. Andy Schleck, because of his youth, but despite his second place finish at Flèche-Wallon the previous week and a fourth place finish at Liège-Bastogne-Liège the previous year, was ranked amongst the B-list of favourites. As the early break of the day got slowly reeled in, the real racing began when Philippe Gilbert attacked just after the climb of the Col de la Redoute, with under 30 kilometres remaining until the finish. Gilbert began building up a lead, which reached a maximum of 42 seconds. But then, Andy Schleck decided to ignite the fuse, which had been waiting to be lit since he had shown so much promise in the 2007 Giro. He attacked at the foot of the Côte de la Roche au Faucon and bridged up to Gilbert alone. He made the juncture with 17 kilometres remaining, but didn't hang around looking to work with Gilbert. He attacked again almost immediately and began a solo breakaway to the finish. Gilbert said at the time, I wanted to win. I felt good on La Redoute and that's why I went early. Schleck was unbelievably strong. I was able to keep up for 300 metres, but then I had to drop back. Nobody saw Andy Schleck again as he crossed the line to take the first Monument Classic win for Luxembourg since Marcel Ernster won the same race 56 years previously. Welcome to This Week in Cycling History. Um, that is a bit of history, Killian, because that's a time when a Schleck actually won something. Yeah, way back in the archives here. Um, I, yeah, I, I just um, I thought it was um, appropriate to, to talk about this because I know I know Andy Schleck has been getting an awful hard time and I, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody I, I kind of cracking Schleck jokes about how disastrous his uh, his year so far and his year last year was and um, but it's I, I, you know it, it's all well and good cracking jokes but it, it's really sad that, that this has happened to him and I, I, I know yourself and Scott spoke about it on the main show as well and um, I, I just thought I'd put this in just as a reminder that you know he, he's um, he's renowned for for coming second a, a lot, but Jesus, I mean that that uh, edition of Liege Bastogne Liege, like he 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 really sh- showed everyone who was boss. You know, it was a really really impressive um, performance, and uh, mm-hmm. you, you know if, if you look at it on YouTube, obviously it's on it's 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 up there. Um, I I I tried to come up with a stat and it's after getting away from me now I, I, I don't know where I had it written down but um, I, his winning margin was 1 minute and 16 seconds over Joaquin Rodriguez and um, that was the biggest winning margin I think I, I think it was um, the biggest one since Bernardino won in 1980 in the snow and, and he won by yeah, 8 or 9 minutes race. or something like that but uh, since then Andy Schleck's solo performance has been on paper at least and in, in in reality, pretty much the the most impressive Liège Bastogne Liège performance since Bernardino, and and you know it, it's just 
it's very, very, it's tragic that it's come to this for for Schleck that he's he can't even finish a race now. I know there's a there's a, a, few, a, a the 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 butt of a few of the jokes. Well, obviously the butt was Andy Schleck, but but the the source of of some of the jokes was uh, the fact that Cavendish since since the start of last year. Cavendish has won as many stage races as Andy Schleck has finished, which kind of, you know, puts it into perspective of how, how bad a time he's having. But um, it, it, it's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, it, it never really um, has been as good for him as it was in 2009. I, obviously, he won the Tour de France bunny years in 2010, but uh, that, that particular mm-hmm. race just... Um, it was the best of of Andy Schleck, and if you compare that with say the um, the 2011 edition when Philippe Gilbert and Andy Schleck and Frank Schleck were were together, the three of them for the last I I'm not sure how many kilometers they were together for, maybe it was ten or twelve, um, coming into the finish, and uh, that was like the opposite. It was like the height of the Schlecks' uh, weird unwillingness to risk winning I mean that was quite possibly the most embarrassing finish to a race I've ever seen where you had two folk who weren't only teammates but brothers and essentially they just you know lay down and let Gilbert take them apart yeah it's like as if they they were completely devoid of ideas or or a, or a willingness to risk anything and they were just they seemed to just be happy knowing that they would both be on the podium at the end and the fact that, that it was definitely going to be second and third didn't seem to matter and uh, that was completely at at odds with what Andy Schleck did in 2009 where I mean Frank Schleck was there and, and I, I think I said it in the piece that Frank Schleck was pro- probably one of the favourites above Andy Schleck Andy Schleck was, was you know he, he hadn't really um Kind of established himself as as a as a big big rider yet. I mean, he hadn't he, he hadn't um, mm-hmm. finished on the podium of the Tour de France yet. You know, that was the 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 race the the year that he kind of announced himself at the Tour, and he and he had yet to do that. So Frank Schleck was actually the favourite, really, of the two anyway. And uh, Andy Schleck just uh, used that to his advantage, which which is what they should be doing. You know, Frank Schleck is 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 being marked in the in the group of favourites, and Andy Schleck attacks. And everybody's marking Frank Schleck, and Andy Schleck goes up the road. I mean, it's not, it's not. I mean, it's obviously it's physically difficult, but um, the the tactics of it are simple, and they just don't seem to be able to ever get that together since since that race. Mm-hmm. They just seem to struggle to to deal with that. And obviously now it's it's completely gone pear shaped for them with Frank Schleck suspended and Andy Schleck um, unable to 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 finish a race, like I said. But 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 um. I uh, I read this article recently. Um, it was in the latest edition of Pro Cycling Magazine. It was written by Herbie Sykes, and uh, it was about Damiano Cunego, or Cunego. How do you pronounce that? We always do this every week. I go for Cunego. Cunego. Okay, Cunego. So yeah. so Cunego, um, kind of similar, I guess, in, in many ways. I mean, in two thousand and four, he was young. Um, he won the Giro d'Italia. He, he he put his teammate Gilberto Simoni to the sword. He followed that up with victory in the mm-hmm. Tour of Lombardy, and uh, he was the next best thing. And and just ever since, he's never really lived up to it. He's never. I mean, well, that's probably unfair. I he, he's won the Tour of Lombardy two more times after that, which is you know 
uh, enough to, to to satisfy any Palmares really. But but uh, you know, mm-hmm. for for somebody who who won the Giro and Tour of Lombardy so young, he he hasn't really lived up to it. And 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 now like he goes to the Tour de France and and the Giro and and you know his, his the best he could probably hope for is and uh, is like sixth or seventh or or in the top ten anyway. And that's the kind of rider he is now. And and the implication in the article, uh, I'm not really sure whether he quite stopped short of saying it. He pre- he pretty much came out and said it was that um, the the thought is that Cunego was doping in 2004, decided that this wasn't for him, that he he didn't whatever he didn't want the pressure or he didn't 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 want to physically do this to himself, so he stopped. Uh, and now this is really the rider that he is. He he is a guy who who's capable of finishing sixth or seventh. He's not naturally a guy who could win the Giro and and for the last six or seven years this is this is his level and um I, I've I've read on the murky underbelly forums of cycling that that exist that this is also true of Andy Schleck that or this could be true of Andy Schleck that he he had you know doped in 2009 and and mm-hmm. you know possibly a couple of years thereafter and now he's not but I I don't quite buy into that. I I um, if it is true, it it's not the only thing that's going on because I mean it's not like Andy Schleck is riding races and coming tenth, whereas he used to be finishing on the podium. He he's just not finishing them. He's there's physically something terribly right. wrong with him, or and mentally as as yourself. I think it, and it, Scott alluded to. You know, he it's just it's it's not it's it couldn't possibly just be that he he's he's no longer doping. He he's uh he he's really having a much much bigger problems than that, I think. It's funny, actually, because I, mean, I think back, um, and I think we talked about this, or I talked about it with Scott, in 2006 at the Amstel Gold, I watched Frank Schleck, you know, wonderful performance win. At the time, he said, you know, if you think I'm good, wait till you see my brother Andy. In 2009, Andy appeared in the scene with this beautifully taken win in Liege, Bastogne Liege. And it is kind of sad to see where they are just now. You know, I, I was looking at Frank Schleck's official website today. It was last updated middle of last year. You know, it's they're, they're just falling apart in every way that's imaginable. And I, I think I think they're done, to tell you the truth. And that, that, it's sad because they were clearly a huge talent. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, he's still he's still young enough. What age is he? 26, 27, 20, 26 yeah. maybe. I mean, you know, he's not... A, He's not over the hill by any means. I mean, even if he even if he has to ride off this year as well, I mean, he can still come. You know, there's still plenty of time for him to to, to get his act together. But uh, I, I I just think it's it's a kind of a, it's a missed opportunity for him in this year's Tour de France if he doesn't physically and mentally get his act together before then because Frank Schleck won't be there, <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, he he won't have this um, th- th- this baggage of weird behaviour that that they exhibit when they're both together. You know, so. He he would have been at the tour. I mean, I mean, he may still be at the tour without Frank Schleck, because Frank Schleck would be would be suspended. So uh, it's I guess it's a it's it it will be or it may be a missed opportunity for Andy Schleck to um, focus solely on himself this summer. And uh, I I, ho- I hope he gets it together because I I I think um, it, it could be a really great tour with um, everybody kind of coming together. Uh, we spoke about this before. Like Cadell Evans is is. Uh, is feeling really good. He's back from injury and an illness, and um, you know Chris Froome is coming good. Contador is back, and uh, I, I, I just it, it would be it would be it would 
sad is the word I'd use again. It'd be sad if he misses it. I think um, I, I feel really sorry for him. Now, what do you think about uh, Mark Cavendish saying he's not he's not targeting Milan Sanremo's? <laughs> I mean, it's the first of the classics. Um, or the first of the monuments, and I, I think he's talking crap. Yeah, yeah, I think he is as well. I, I wrote a blog post on this the other day. He he said it, it, there was a an interview with him after the tour of Qatar, one of the stages, maybe it was the last stage with Matt Rendell after the end of the stage, and he said, "Nah, nah, I'm not interested in Milan San Remo, Re, Milan San Remo anymore. It's not a race for me anymore." He said, and you think anymore? Like, what's the difference? And 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 I look back and I thought maybe he's talking about you know the the Lamani climb that they've put in, but that was in when he won it. Mm-hmm. it. It that got put in in 2008 and he won it in 2009, and uh, you know so what what's what's different there, Mark? You know, the, the, like what do you mean not race for me anymore? He he's like and and you know he did this in 2009. He he, he kind of convinced everybody that he. Uh, he he wasn't aiming for Milan Sanremo that he was too young that he was only using the race for experience and etc etc and and he 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 successfully convinced people that there was no chance he was going to be at the front at the end of the race and of mm. course he was and he won and uh, then the following year um it was as if he was trying to do it again because he actually genuinely was uh, struggling i i think he had that problem with his teeth he had severe dental problems over the winter and that set him back and uh you know he was coming out with all these quotes like oh i'm i'm, I'm ill i'm not ready for milan Remo. I'll, I'll go as defending champion but don't expect too much and everybody was kind of looking at him with raised eyebrows going yeah well we've heard all that before and uh as it happened he, he was telling the truth that time but now a couple of years later it's 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 as if he's banking on everybody's memory to be dreadful and that they can't remember what he did in 2009 because it seems like he's trying it again and and I, I i wrote in my blog post like yeah you know last year if he had said this you'd kind of think fair enough he's got the olympics uh on the horizon and you know he's the he's a favor for that in his in on his home turf and he he, he needs to kind of uh focus his form on the back end of the season rather than gambling on on trying to spread himself out throughout the entire year whereas this year there's no olympics the worlds doesn't suit him at all i'd be surprised if he even rides the worlds so all that's left is the tour de france and the giro he focuses on as well but sure that's not for three months you know so what else would he be doing why why has he gotten himself in such great shape that he can win stages of of the tour of qatar at ease you know why why is he in such good form if he's not trying to win milan san Remo? What, what else would he be doing you know yeah. Anyway, let's move on um, because I think uh, I, I actually went for a, sh- a short training ride on my bike while you were waffled on there. Oh God! Um, I don't blame you. <laughs> now, somebody else who I've always found vaguely disappointing—not because of his style, but because I think he always should have won more than he, in fact he has—is uh, Juan Antonio Flesher. And here's a story involving him. In 2005, Nico Matan won Ghent-Wevelgem by beating Juan Antonio Flesha in controversial fashion. Matan had been competitive in classics for years and was just about coming to the end of his career. He'd had top 10 places at Paris-Roubaix, the Tour of Flanders and Amstel Gold, but he had never quite landed a big victory. Flesha, on the other hand, was a Spanish classic star in the making, a rare breed indeed, and although he had achieved solid results in his first year with Fasa Bartolo in 2004, he had also yet to score a big win. After an exciting race animated by plenty of attacks, Flesha had a 5 second lead over Matan as he went under the red kite for 1km to go. 
Matan was alone behind, desperately trying to close the gap. Usually, if a rider in front has team cars and camera bikes behind them, these vehicles will be removed from the gap if the front rider is looking likely to be caught. But on this occasion, the vehicles were not removed from the gap. With 300 metres to go, Matan closed in on the bunch of vehicles following Flesha. As the finish line approached, Matan weaved between the traffic, using each slipstream to maximum effect, before being slingshot ahead of Flesha to nip past them in the final metres. It was an extremely controversial way for the race to be decided. Flesha's Fasa Bartolo team released the following statement after the race. Although Flesha opened an advantage of six seconds over Matan, there were, inexplicably, five vehicles that followed our rider. These facilitated the return of Matan and caused Flesha to lose his win. It is not possible that this should happen in a Pro Tour race. All of the events in this contest should be synonymous of absolute quality. Matan defended himself by saying, I kept going when Flesha attacked, believing I could still win. I was closing up to him when I saw the vehicles, but what could I do about that? I wasn't going to ease up. I had to get back up to him, so I had to just keep going. It wasn't my fault. They shouldn't have been there. You can't say that the motorbikes helped me win. I was never right behind them on their wheel. It was my legs that got me to the line. The UCI commissaires sided with Matan, stating that although the motorbikes were aiding the Belgian, the rider himself was not at fault, and the results should stand. The drivers of the motorbikes were warned, and the Shimano neutral service car driver was actually fined 400 Swiss francs, but this was little consolation to Flesche, as he was denied the biggest win of his career. Instead, Matan took the biggest win of his. Although he has won a stage of the Tour de France and an edition of Het Volk, Flesche, now aged 35, has still never won a World Tour level classic. Now, I'm going to utter a sentence here, and it'll be the first you'll hear, from, or the last you'll hear from me for about 20 minutes, I would think. Uh, but I remember this incredibly clearly, and it was a completely disgraceful finish. Flesher was robbed. Yeah, yeah, it really was. When you see, I actually, I tried to find it on YouTube. Um, I remember l- looking at it on YouTube, I, I don't know, maybe a year ago or more. I tried to find it, and I couldn't. But but I, I'm sure it's still out there. But if you look at the footage, it, it is, it's... Uh, you know, it's no exaggeration to, to say that he was robbed. And, and you, you know, Mat- Matan was leapfrogging from one vehicle to another, you know, clearly getting help, you know, in, in the slipstream of, of vehicles. And, uh, you know, Flesche ha- has unbelievable grounds to feel aggrieved about uh, this. And, um, you know, like, yeah, like, um, like I said just at the end of the piece, you know, he's still, excuse me, he's still... Um, waiting for a big win you know he's he's obviously he's won a stage of the Tour de France and he won Het Volk um, but you know he hasn't won uh, Ghent Wevelgem or the Tour of Flanders or Paris-Roubaix and he's come mighty close a lot of the, a lot of times he's, he's finished on the podium yeah. a lot and uh, you know if he gets to the end of his career I mean he's still riding but if he gets to the end of his career and this was the closest he ever came to win winning one of these races like man that's that's a terrible terrible way for it to be taken away from you um it's it's really really awful like i'd, I'd urge anybody to to try and find the footage of this it, it, it's alarming that this was allowed to happen but at the same time i mean what, what could they have done you know it's not like you know it, it reminded me of this, there was this um football match that took place uh between arsenal and sheffield united um, I'm not sure oh, what year it was, God, but maybe it was 2004. It was around then. And um, there's this thing they do in football where if somebody gets injured, they you, you put the ball out of play, and uh, whoever had the ball before before the ball got kicked out of play, the other team just gives it back to them, and that's just an unwritten rule. And uh, 
in this game between Arsenal and Sheffield United, uh, Canu, the Arsenal striker, either wasn't paying attention or or, or didn't realise what was going on. And when the ball got thrown back to Sheffield United after an injury, Canu took the ball, played on. The Sheffield United players were standing there going, what the hell is he doing? And uh, he, he scored a goal, which is a real no-no. But, uh, you know, in football, you have the opportunity to say, look, we'll replay the match. And, and that's what they did. The Sheffield United players walked off the pitch, I think, for, for, for a while. They were eventually convinced to go on and, and finish the match, I think. They lost. But then Arsene Wenger, the Arsenal manager, uh, offered afterwards, look, we'll, we feel really bad about this. We'll replay the game, which they were able to do. But, like, what were they supposed to do in, in, in Gent Revelgum? They, they, they couldn't say, look, you know, that was, that was a big no-no. Broke one of the unwritten rules. You know, let's, let's replay the whole thing. Like, I mean, were the commissars just supposed to awarded to Flesher. I'm not sure they were they were kind of put in a, a bit of an impossible position, I think. I'm not sure. What do you think? To, to be fair, you can't actually blame Nico Matan. I mean, because we've all been there when you've been dropped in a club run or something and you hope in the back of a tractor, you know, draft a tractor. He wants to win, you know, he's being paid to win, and the opportunity presents itself. Yeah, I mean... I'm sure he, at the end of the day he could have said, oh, you know, I could have won using the car, but, I t- you know, I took the moral high ground. And his DS would have roasted him, you know, over the yeah, course of yeah, it. absolutely. I have a path to a tangent laid out here in the notes, which is probably no surprise. But it, it got um, got me thinking, like, about what is cheating, you know? And uh, calling that cheating, I think, would be... I don't know. I, 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 like you say, you can't blame Nico Matan. I mean... It wasn't his fault there were so many vehicles between him and Flesher. And, like you say, was he supposed to just go up the outside of the road and ignore them? And, you know, of course not. Like, that's just, that's just, that, that was what was in front of him and he dealt, and he, and he dealt with it. But, uh, yeah, it did get me thinking to kind of what is cheating. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a weird little microcosm of a world that, that is cycling when it comes to cheating. And we've spoken a lot before about uh, the the money that can change hands in these races. And and that uh, we just mm-hmm. kind of accept this as as part of the sport. That, you know, if two riders get to a finish together, um, you know, they, t- they start talking about money. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I watched Tess Noiseblad, as it's known now, yesterday. And... Uh, um, God, his name escapes me now. Steen Vandenberg came to the finish with Luca Paolini. And, you know, you'd kind of be surprised if they didn't mention it to each other. You'd kind of expect that that conversation took place, that that they spoke about exchanging a few bob for f- for the win. And, uh, you know, of course that's cheating. It's, it's match-fixing, you know? And, like, all, all of this... <laughs> Uh, stuff about Aussie rules football and in Australia got released there a while ago and, uh, and and there's uproar about all this global match fixing and in soccer that this uh, match fixing is, is is a big big problem and uh, it, it it's just it pervades cycling to such an extent that we think it's not a problem and, and like the only thing that you could compare that to is doping you know and and mm-hmm. but that's that's what the attitude, like I wonder in 30 years time whether we'll look back. At, at these races going wow you know they actually they used to they used to exchange money for these things they used to fix races and it was nobody really cared 
that was just the way it was. And that's the way doping was 30 years ago, you know? Everybody knew, everybody, well, not everybody did it, but most people did it. Everybody knew about it. But that's just the way it was. Nobody questioned it. That's, that was part of it. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, it, it, it's, um, it's it's a weird one that 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 this is that this is acceptable, you know, and it it shouldn't really be, and and it, it's um like a lot of the blame that gets placed on the UCI for the doping problems, uh, these days is that they um you know they knew what was going on, and but they just did the bare minimum to to look mm-hmm. as if they were dealing with the problem, and essentially they've done the same thing with this match fixing, or, or race fixing, you know when when the allegations cropped up about Alexander Vinokurov buying off Liège-Bastogne-Liège from Alexander Kolobnev in 2010. You know, the UCI investigated because it came to light. Or, or they said they were investigating. I don't know whether they did investigate it. It's kind of been forgotten about now. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they said, oh, yeah, God, yeah, we'll, we'll investigate that. Yeah, of course you will. They broke the rules, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, just bare minimum stuff. But, like, I mean, I wasn't re- following cycling in the 80s, but... You know, I'd imagine that that's what... Well, I wouldn't imagine. I know that's what they did with the doping. Like, I know... Um, sorry, I've been talking for a long time now, John. You're still there, are you? <laughs> no, it's, it's okay, actually. I'm I'm, I'm away to make breakfast, so I'll I'll pop back every five minutes and check if you're still talking. Um, it, it is, uh, <laughs> this, this is all kind of coming to mind because I was at another talk recently with Paul Kimmage and David Walsh. They, they've... They're, started doing this circuit of, of nights that I think they've called it whistleblowers mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I went up to Dublin and, and they were they were there and they were being asked questions by this other journalist his name is Alan English so the Kimmage and Walsh were there kind of you know on, on, on a stage being and, interviewed um, asked these these questions and it was you know thrown open to the floor after for questions and, and all that but it was very interesting and Kimmage kind of got into this uh, topic of of uh, fixing and that of course it's unacceptable but you know it's accepted in cycling and um he spoke about uh um sean kelly in uh, the 1986 milan san and i actually think uh, since then kimmage has written an, an uh, article for this new magazine you know this new two or magazine that jared vrooman's got going on yeah, yeah. um there's an interview, there's a very long interview with uh, paul kimmage and greg paul kimmage interviewing greg lamond and this story appears in it that uh Kelly and LeMond were away in um, the 1986 Milan-San with this other guy, Mario Becchia, and uh, the three of them were coming up to the finish, and uh, uh, LeMond says he was at the front, and he heard this voice from behind him, you know, this back arse of nowhere, Ireland accent going, you know, 10 grand, 15 grand, 20 grand, shouting prices at him, you know, what will you, you take for the win? LeMond said he couldn't believe it, and he goes, I'm not, I'm not taking, I'm taking your money. And uh, of course, Kelly beat him anyway. And uh, you know the, the, the kind of the funny line at the end of it was that uh, Kimmage says um, that's the first, the first and only time Kelly ever offered offered money to anybody for anything. He should Lamont should feel really privileged that he he felt threatened enough to do that. But you know, you know, Kelly won the race anyway. But like, if you compare, if in a roundabout way, I'll I'll, I'll get to my point now in a sec. If you compare um, uh, that to um, or if, if you compare the the the, uh, the attitude towards um, doping that was around then with the attitude of race fixing that's around now, you know Kelly tested positive at the, at the uh, nineteen eighty four Paris Brussels, and uh, you know it very mm-hmm. much was a case of uh, 
God, you know, you got caught, but you know, you're an e- you're an idiot for getting caught. Just don't get caught again. You know, they 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 gave him a fine of a thousand Swiss francs and gave him a a, a month suspended sentence. And and that was very much the message. And and Walsh and Kim spoke about this that this was the message back then. It was like you know, um, you're stupid for getting caught. Don't don't get caught. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of get the feeling that that's the way it was with Finikurov and. And Kolobnev, you know, you, you're stupid for getting caught. We'll, we'll investigate, or we'll say we'll investigate, but really, there's nothing really we can we can do to to to, to uh, prove this. Um, so, you know, it's it's not a problem. Let's forget about it. And uh, you you just you'd you'd wonder how how far um, we'll get in cycling with this still part of the sport before we uh, before we start. Um, out, outraging morally about it the way the way it has become with doping in the last i don't know 10 15 years it's funny though because i mean that would actually explain a lot of the racing that went on yesterday because i was thinking why the hell's that guy towing that we that we yeah yeah um and you, you you've got to assume that um you know katusha have got very deep pockets at the moment and want to make a point yeah. now, you know now they've been reinstated yeah now that they've been looking for the world to a license yeah they, they, they'll do anything for a win um but i it's maybe just to i i have another couple of stories maybe about the walsh thing i don't know whether you want me to go into that or not i yeah. go for it mate. It, it just walsh painted a really good picture of uh of um the the, the attitudes towards doping stories at, at at the time um before armstrong and, and just as armstrong was was coming into uh to to the fore in in 99 uh, and uh you know he, he just he painted a good picture of how difficult it was and um maybe just to start at the start i i had this conversation recently with with a with an editor of, of a cycling website and and he was um of the opinion that david welch's integrity should be questioned because he was essentially part of the problem for a long time in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, he was writing about cycling a long time before he mm-hmm. decided that he was going to tackle this doping issue, you know. And uh, the, the argument we had was that uh, I, I thought he was applying the standards of today to an era that's bygone and, and that the standards of today are only around because of, the, of guys like David Walsh. And, yeah, you know... Everybody was part of the problem in the eighties. Nobody was writing about doping. Maybe I'm being a bit unfair there, but I I don't know of any cycling journalists that were really chasing that kind of stuff in the eighties. No, I don't. I don't think there were. I mean, I was I was there because I'm much older than you, and I I mean I can't remember any outrage about doping in the yeah. There was there was none, you know, and and you know, Walsh put his hands up and said, "Look, I I didn't want to go there, you know. I I I was." um, he kind of said he was part of the problem. Of course, you know he 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 um, he was willing to to look the other way. He, he he you know he wrote a book about Sean Kelly in the eighties, and you know he had to write about that doping positive from Paris Brussels, and he just kind of accepted um, all the excuses. He didn't, he, you know, he'd ask Kelly and Roach and, and Robert Miller for their opinions on these things, and just accepted their answers and didn't question. It didn't want to question it, you know. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. he put his hands up and he said that. And uh, the, the the argument I had with the with the editor of the of the the uh, cycling site was that um, you know nobody was 
it's it's very easy now to look back then and apply the standards that we have now, which is all the doping stories need to be investigated. And, you know, it, it, it's it's not taboo anymore to write about it. Fans want to hear these stories. Whereas back then, there wasn't there was no public demand for, for these kinds of stories. In fact, it was the opposite. There was outrage when when you, you did cast aspersions and, uh, on, on these guys and mm-hmm. write the stories. It, you know, it, it was the opposite. Whereas... It, it it and and Walt said it took an incident in um well he said his his interest was peaked first of all when Delgado tested positive in, in 1988 but he said the big watershed yeah. moment for him was actually not to do with cycling it was to do with swimming I don't know whether you remember um Michelle Smith was an Irish swimmer in uh, the 1996 Olympics yeah. and she won three gold medals and a bronze medal which was unheard of. like she was actually quite old you know for a swimmer swimmers are very young in general and she was I'm not sure what age she was she was in her late twenties, you know, which is old for a swimmer, and she was getting these results that she had never had before. And Walsh painted this picture of what it was like to be a journalist at that time. And Walsh was—I'm not sure which way around it was. Whether Walsh was actually—he was working for the Sunday Times. Kimmich was working for the Sunday Independent, and they were both chasing the doping angle of this story. And um. Welch was talking about a conversation he had with um, a journalist from RTE, which is the national broadcaster in, in Ireland, it's the equivalent of the BBC. And uh, mm-hmm. this journalist from RTE, she was talking to Welch, and after talking to Welch, she she was like, "Yeah, okay, I'll I'll pursue the doping angle with this story as well. She's obviously doping. I'll, I'm going to write about it for RTE and report on it." And and when she got back to RTE, the the editor of RTE News said to her. Are you sure we want to interfere with the national mood? Was what he said, and you know that's the kind of thing you're dealing with. That you know this was a, a really uh, a feel good story, and uh, she was basically told, "Drop it. You're you're not you're not to pursue this. We don't want this story on RTE sullying people's spirits because of this amazing thing that has happened to our, our Ireland and Irish sport. You know we're not we're not going to be the ones." to to take this story down and Walsh went on then to talk about uh, the very same thing happened with Armstrong and and uh, yeah. that he was in the room uh, it, it gets talked about a lot when Armstrong attacked on Sestri, uh, on the climb to Sestriere in 99 shortly after he had uh, maybe it was the day after it was the next day January there might have been a rest day in between that he had won the time trial and uh, he was in the yellow jersey and he attacked on Sestriere and, and you know people were uh, the story goes that people were laughing in the in the press room that you know this is just unbelievable. Well, I said they weren't laughing; they were kind of shrugging and you know giving the eyes and going, "Can you believe this?" And uh, and yes, you know, it didn't get written about. But he said that that's actually unfair. Is what he said. That uh, he, he he took the example of Lequipe, and he said that for two weeks, for the first two weeks of the ninety nine Tour de France, there was. Uh, articles of suspicion and um, you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for cynicism yeah yeah. there was articles of cynicism for the first two weeks of that race in the pages of L'Equipe and he said what happened was ASO owners of the Tour de France owners of L'Equipe spoke to the sports the cycling editor of L'Equipe and said we need this story stop stop being cynical and then he said for the third week of the tour all the stories were about how a great champion he was 
how a great champion Armstrong is and you know the 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 feel good story and all of a sudden the the aspersions and the cynicism were gone but this you know these this is editorial decisions it's not it's not individual journalists that that decide i'm going to i'm going to write it. well it is but they need the approval of the editor and uh, that this is what you were battling against back then and then the more armstrong won the harder it became and nobody was nobody wanted to write these things and um it, it was just it was it was very di- I, I i would i don't envy them i'd say it was very difficult for journalists back then to 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 maintain their integrity in the face of editorial pressure like that and uh it is it, um i mean obviously now i mean we've spoken before about the integrity of paul Kimmich, but he's he's unemployed now because of it you know and, yeah. and that's that's <laughs> i mean if that's the alternative I know I wouldn't want to be unemployed. You know, I don't. I don't think I have that much integrity. It's funny because I had a wee exchange with Daniel Freeb about this. Yeah, I saw um, that. Yeah, and his argument was that as a journalist, and looking back, I think he's right. As a journalist, the journalists were trying really hard to, you know, to push hints as as much as they could. And what I said to him was, it wasn't so much that that annoyed me. It was the fact that Armstrong, particularly, was lionised during that period. And he was saying essentially the edit- the editors just what you're saying wanted Armstrong on the mm. cover, um, so you know the big headline was wonderful, 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 whereas as journalists a lot of them were trying to tell the truth but just weren't given the freedom to. Yeah, tough job, you know, really, really tough job. And and I suppose that's the whole point that was, um, I was trying to make when I was having this argument with the editor of the Cycling News website was that it, it's it's not it's not it's no longer a tough job. You can you you can write these things now. You know, like for instance, Herbie Sykes in that uh, piece we spoke about in the last bit of, uh, about Damiano Cunago, he he said uh, um, that Ivan Basso was supercharged to win the 2006 Giro. Now that's never been proven. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, he 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 was never he was never uh, convicted for taking any sort of doping products for that race. But the fact that he's, you know, editorially he's allowed to put that in an article now. You know, that's the kind of landscape you're dealing with with cycling journalism now. You you you're allowed not to say whatever you want, but there's way more freedom to write about doping now, and that's because of guys like Paul Kimmage and David Walsh. So I I just um of course you can question Walsh's integrity from the seventies and the eighties, but you know, in different times, different time, and you know why question? I don't know. It just seemed a strange decision to question his integrity above all of the other cycling journalists who weren't talking about this, whereas he's the one who's done everything he could to change it, you know, and and now it's changed. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, you know, cycling journalists in general have a lot to, to thank him for, I would say. No, of course. Now, um, I've got to have my tea at some point tonight, so if we're going to finish recording before six o'clock, I better move us along. <laughs> You're on fine form the day, mate. Yeah. This is what happens when we don't record a show for three weeks. <laughs> it's all bottled up. This is uh, it's another story about Milan San Remo, uh, which is I mean I'm I'm gagging for it now, even though I've you know I've often said it's the longest warm up for the shortest race in history. Um, it's I mean it it always marks. I mean this weekend, Kern Brussels Kern I've just read has been cancelled officially. Um, so we're robbed of that you know cobbly weekend. But Milan San Remo for me is, is the point where I start to get really excited about that dense concentration of classics. Uh, and this is a story from 1970. In 1970, Milan San Remo was won by an Italian for the first time in 17 years. 
The last home winner of Man San Remo had come in 1953 when Loretto Petrucci won it for the second consecutive year. Since then, riders from Belgium, Spain, France, Britain, the Netherlands and Germany had all shared the spoils as Italy waited for a rider worthy of reclaiming their own monument classic. A 27-year-old called Michele Dancelli would soon change all that. Although still relatively young, Dancelli had buckets of experience and was in his seventh year as a professional. He had won seven stages of the Giro d'Italia, a stage of the Tour de France and Flèche Wallonne, as well as umpteen one-day Italian races such as the Giro del Lazio and the Trofeo Leguelia. The 1970 Milan-San Remo was shaped by a breakaway of 18 riders, which formed with still around 200 kilometres to go until the finish. Dancelli was there, but was accompanied by some of the biggest names in world cycling. The de Vlaming brothers, Roger and Eric, Walter Godefroot, Rick Van Loy, Eric Lemann and Franco Batossi. Notably missing from the breakaway was Eddie Merckx, who had won three of the last four editions. In those days of Milan-San Remo, there were actually intermediate sprints dotted along the route, the winners of which received a cash prize. The sprint points were known as primes. With 70 kilometres remaining, a rider called Carlo Chiapano slithers free of the breakaway to chase the money on offer at the sprint prime. Chiapano's team leader, Dancelli, saw this as his opportunity. He knew he would not be capable of beating the top sprinters in the breakaway with him. He bridged a few metres up to Chiapano, who had been allowed to escape for the sprint win, and soon after, he attacked, leaving the rest of the race behind him. Helped by a tailwind blowing him towards the finish, Dancelli rode the last 70 kilometres of the race on his own. Eric Lemann had broken ranks behind and was chasing solo, and was in turn being chased by Gerben Karstens. One minute 39 seconds after Dancelli had crossed the line in victory, Karstens caught Lemann and pipped him on the line for second place. But Karstens had been unaware that Dancelli was ahead and raised his arms aloft in celebration. Dancelli had given reason to cheer back to the Tifosi and had ended the Italian drought at Milan San Remo. So, I mean, that's, uh, what, 17 years, you were saying? And when's the last time an Italian won just now? Pizzato? But yeah, people Pizzato in 2006. And uh, that's, it's actually, besides the 17-year gap that happened up until 1970, the current gap is the longest besides the 17-year one. So it's actually, you know, six years now without an Italian winner of, of their own mm. race. And I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're not happy about it. And, um, I, I guess one of the reasons I put this in was that, uh, you know, there there hasn't been an Italian winner of a monument for 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 five years, for of any of the monuments, and uh, the last one was actually Damiano Cunego, Cunego, funnily enough, in two thousand and eight, the the Tour of Lombardy was the mm-hmm. last time an Italian w- won a monument, and um, you know they don't really have a lot of options. I I I, I don't. Oh, well, maybe that's that's unfair. You know, Vincenzo Nibali has has given Milan San Remo a good go in the last couple of years, and uh, Pippo Pizzato is, you know, it's very hard to tell how how competitive he's going to be f- from race to race. He he seems pretty good. He's won a race already this year. You know, I, mm-hmm. you know, he could be he could be good. And and of course they have this um, generation of young sprinters coming up, Guardini and uh, Modolo and and. Um, I can't think of the other guy's name now. Uh, Viviani, and and you know mm-hmm. they, they they of course they they could be able to shout if it, if it's kept together, but um, I I'd say they're really really you know the Italians like their cycling, <laughs> you know more than most, yeah, and I'd say they're bit, really right. not happy that uh, that um, you know Australians are now coming in and winning their race, which they have done for the last couple of years, and um, you, you know it, it's. Uh, it's a sore point for them, I'd say. 
It's funny though, because I think the problem now is the strength and depth of the peloton. Uh, you know, because gone are the days where you know passion and the ability to dig a wee bit deeper would win you a race. Um, you know, the, the best the best sprinters can now climb well enough to get to the finish in Milan San Remo. Um, the Italians just don't really have a top notch sprinter, and I think that's the problem. Yeah, I suppose not since uh, Pataki. Um, I mean, obviously he's yeah. still going. He's not the, he's not the rider he was. He, he'll probably ride Milan San Remo, but I, I can't I can't see him winning it. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess it's 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 um, yeah, you know, um, it's a strange race. Like you say, it, it, it's very very odd, and and um, I'm not sure. I have it in the notes here uh, with a question mark whether any anybody would be capable of of uh, attacking from seventy kilometers out and making it stick in Milan San Remo these days. I, I I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm being naive. I mean, obviously I wasn't around in the seventies. But uh, teams just seem more organised now. You know, I've watched footage of races in the seventies and uh, versus versus these days, and it just like if if a rider was to break away with seventy kilometres to go, there's just too many teams. You know, Team Sky, Omega Pharma, uh, uh, even Katusha or uh, Liquid Gas with Nibali. There's just there's, there's too many teams want want mm-hmm. to get the race back together and and for a guy to and too break many with 70k riders. to go it just i mean it's not impossible obviously but it just seems much more unlikely these days than it was than it would have been back then i i i mean i don't know whether i'm being naive but but to me that that just seems the case and melanson Remo, like you say it comes down to a you know a big warm-up for a long sprint but uh the, the tension is unbelievable but i just i, I can't really imagine a guy breaking away from from that distance in Milan San Remo. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, it, 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 like Boonen did it in Paris Roubaix last year. I mean, I, I don't think it was quite seventy kilometers. It was more like fifty or fifty-five. Cancellara did it here uh, a couple of years ago in Paris Roubaix. Uh, Stein de Volder's done it in the Tour of Flanders a couple of times. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you know these these long breakaways can happen. I, I just for for some reason Milan San Remo just seems unlikely because it's. Uh, you know, it's predominantly flat, and it's easier to get a a, a chase organised. Yeah, I think the, the races that you've mentioned there, the thing is it's hard to organise a chase, you know, because the sections of Pavi or, or, you know, the cobbles and the, the bergs in Flanders break up the momentum. And I, I get back to that thing where it's the depth of fitness in the peloton. You know, you used to have guys turning up for Milan-San Remo, you know, 20 kilos overweight and looking to race themselves into form. You know, the fact it was so long was essentially just a big fat burning exercise. Whereas everybody who takes that start line in Milan is going to be, you know, fit as a fiddle at the very start of the season because it's all too important now. You know, it's money and it's publicity and it's, you know, it's prestige. And it's not, you know, it's not a relaxed season opener. No, not at all. And, and, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's something I read about recently, actually. I, I can't remember what book I was reading. Or who who the quote was from? Maybe it was Phil Anderson, and he was uh, talking about riders today. And you know, he said he wouldn't pick up his bike until January. Uh, and, and you know, you you have guys now who are you know they're they're starting their training in in you know November, and and like he's fit as a fiddle by the time it comes to March. And and you know, there's there's just there's just too many possibilities and too many people with um an, an interest in it coming back together for. it. For a break to stay away, I, I I think well you know a long a long breakaway, um, 
And uh, so, something else I have written down here is that uh, I, I just, you know, you look back on these stories from 1970, and obviously this this performance by Michele Dancelli, I mean, it, it was probably the best day of his career. Um, and and you know, you, you you look back on paper and oh yeah, he broke away at 70 kilometers to go, and you know, he made it to the finish, and it's just incredible performance, and you know. It's an incredible performance, but for if we were to watch that live as a race now, it probably wouldn't be that exciting. You know, you look back at it as a, as a really, really uh, an incredible feat, but as a as a mm-hmm. viewing spectacle, it it probably you know long breakaways aren't that exciting. You, you know, Tom Boonen last year in Paris Roubaix, I mean, it was amazing what he what he did, but you know, the race was over with an hour and a half to go, uh, uh, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, just just to put put another football analogy on it, like I don't really like watching Barcelona play. I I I'd probably get lynched by football purists, but you know they're an amazing football team, and what they do is technically brilliant. They keep the ball better than probably any team in the history of the game. But you know, I'd rather watch QPR against Wigan. That that it's a ding dong battle, and it's you know two teams of the same level fighting it out against each other, and it's and and, and like. Like the cycling, uh, it, it it's it's amazingly impressive, but it's kind of you know lacking in a bit of excitement. And um, yeah, I mean, if you compare last year's Boonen break in Roubaix, um, I've seen long breaks that are exciting, but it's when there's somebody chasing hard, you know, Gilbert Duclos Al being pursued by Olaf Ludwig or something, you know, where there's attention yeah. to it. For really for really long ones where you know there's a minute and a half by the time you're going over you know the Poggio or whatever. It, would, it probably would be pretty dull, which is why, I mean, I've had this discussion with Scott quite a lot, because he gets really bored during, you know, the transition stages in the Tour, yeah. for example. Um, the problem isn't the actual race, you know, because if you made it shorter, it would completely change the character of the thing. It's the fact that now, because we see everything all the time, um, it's kind of dull, whereas if you can, you know, you got that down into a 20 minutes highlight show, that would be a cracking yeah, race. Yeah, yeah, it would, yeah, it, you could really dramatise everything. It kind of, it, it got me kind of thinking as well about um, what my favourite ever classic has been to watch. Um, and I, I think, I think the best one I've seen uh, in recent years is the 2011 Tour of Flanders. That was the one that Nick Noyens won. And, uh, yeah. you know, the previous year you had Fabian Cancellara um, absolutely dominated. You know, he, he he rode away from everyone. I'm not sure how far it was to go to the finish. It was it was a good bit. It was 40 kilometers or something, and he rode away and he, you know, imperious fashion and and won it. And then you know the following year it was like, can he do it again? And then he did do it again, and everybody thought it was over. But then it wasn't. He cracked and he was caught. And this big group came together. And then and then he attacked again and took Chavanel and Noyes with him. And then Boone and was was uh, bearing down from behind, you know, like a rabid dog trying to catch them at the, uh, you know, in the final couple of kilometers. And then, and then Noyens pipped him. I just thought it had everything. It was, it, it, it you know, it had a, um, it just had excitement and, and uh, unpredictability. I just thought it was great. I just, I, I just had it written there, you know, my favorite ever classic. I'm not sure. If, what Do you know what yours would be? Oh, that, yeah. I, t- I honestly don't know actually because I've got memories of uh, which I'm sure are through rose t- tinted spectacles. I think my favourite classics are actually ones that I didn't watch. You know, where I read about Kelly winning Paris Roubaix. You know, with that iconic photograph where he's in the skill jersey and he looks like he's been down a coal pit for the last yeah. six months. So I mean, they're they're romantic in my head. If if ones that I've watched recently, yeah, I mean that Flanders that Noyens one was it, it had a bit of everything. You know, there was tension. 
But also, I loved watching the old guys, Gilbert de Clos-Lasalle, uh, winning Roubaix, you know, when he's uh, Le Monde bike with his one-inch steerer rock shocks on them, the yeah. red ones. Um, so, I mean, I'm old. I've got so many memories of these things, Killian, that I just can't choose between them. <laughs> well, spe- speaking about types of bikes, um, the... Uh Dan Shelley was riding for the Malteny team that day. The Malteny team is is uh, the one probably made famous by Eddie Merckx. I don't think Eddie Merckx was on the team at that stage. He joined the following year, I think. But uh, Malteny, um, the me- the mechanic was Ernesto Colnago, and uh, yeah. he was in the following car behind Dan Shelley, shouting at him, um, and uh, a la Thibaut Pino in in the in the Tour de France last year, and. Um, he he uh so he was shouting at Dancelli and um he said I've I've got this great quote uh that 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 he said after Dancelli won that day. He said uh, that Milan Sanremo win inspired me to change the logos on my bikes. It was like I had an ace up my sleeve that day with Dancelli winning the race on my bike. So to commemorate this great win I changed the logo from the Eagle to the Asso di Fiori, the ace of clubs, later that year. Which has become now the iconic image of Colnago bikes, which is the Ace of Clubs. Um, I, I just thought you'd like that. I know you're a bike fiend. Well, and th- there are actually three different versions of that story, depending on who you listen to. <laughs> um, one, they're all Ernesto Colnagos. One is that uh, the Dancelli family crest was in fact the Ace of Clubs, or it was oh, in the right. crest. So he took it from that. And the other one is that I can't remember the journalist's name. But he wrote that that day, um, Dan Shelley was in a bike which was in bloom. And so the, the Ace of Clubs is a kind of a, a graphic picture of a flower, which is the, uh, the symbol of San Remo. So I think old Ernesto reinvented his own legend a few times. <laughs> I sure no harm in that. But uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't Dan Shelley have a range of bikes now himself? Is that the... Yeah, yeah, I think he currently does. Um, but I've never seen them. I mean, I was I was trying to think if I'd ever actually seen one, and I haven't. I mean, even going to trade shows and stuff. But I mean, he's not that old now. I mean, he's still he's still kicking about. And I think every Italian ex-pro has either got a bike shop <laughs> yeah, or a range yeah, of bikes, haven't yeah. they? Yeah, definitely. Uh, just maybe one last thing. I just I thought it was a, a quirky uh, stat uh, just before we go. It was uh, I know we've spoken before about Gerben Carstens. He's a Dutch cyclist, and um, he he's he's the only guy who. Um, has been stripped of two classics when he won them. He, he got stripped of both of them for doping reasons. He got stripped of the 1969 Tour of Lombardy and the 1974 Paris Tour race. And, you know, like I said, the piece, he was the guy that, that put his hands up because um, he thought he'd won the 1970 Milan San Remo, whereas, in fact, Ancelli was a minute and a half up, up the road ahead of him. So that's three classics that he thought he won, which, which, were, which were taken away from him. Which is, uh, uh, we've talked about well, him before. He's not exactly the luckiest no, of writers, no, is he? It's not, no, no. Right, I think um, we'll wrap up just now uh, because that's that's going to be quite a long show. But I think it's my fault because I called off last week because of my birthday and wedding anniversary. So I'll, I'll let you off having all that bottled up inside you. Um, well, happy, where can happy people find birthday. you? On, on, on... Aye, well, um, we talked via Twitter because I had too sore a head to record. Actually, I think if I recall properly, uh, where can people find you on the internet? I'm at Irish Peloton on Twitter, and if you want to email me, it's just mail at irishpeloton dot com. Brilliant. I'm at W John Galloway, and you can also hear me on uh, Velocast Tech 5 and the official Eurosport cycling podcast. And thanks for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight. <laughs>